Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Thank you again for joining me here at the back of the range. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg. It has been a crazy few days in the world of sports. Uh, Phil Mickelson just beat Justin Thomas to win a WGC event. Kobe Bryant won an Oscar. And this week's episode puts us at double digits. That's right. This is episode number 10. I'd ask you all to vote on that and which shocks you the most, but I think I already know the answer. As always, thank you very much to Mitch Phillips. He is our guy that makes the back of the range sound so professional each and every week. Want to know where else you can hear his voice? Check him out at mpvoice.com. If you're not following on Instagram, you really need to do so. We can be found at the Back of the Range podcast, and that is where you're going to find all of our updates about future episodes, little teaser clips, what's coming up next. It's a good follow. Our website is thebackoftherange.com. That's where you can get all the episodes, links on how to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and the other providers, and how you can contact us. And if you like the podcast so far, please leave a review wherever you can. It'll get us better exposure, better guests, and keep this thing growing each and every week. This week's guest is Darren Zent from Mifflintown, Pennsylvania. We had a chance to sit down for a fun and informative interview where we focus on his start in the game and his career as a superintendent. He started Riviera in Los Angeles. There's the hijinks of the Sullivan Invitational at Lebanon Country Club. And he also won the Superintendent National Championship in Orlando. We're going to cover it all, including chinch bugs and manganese. So, Darren, you're at the back of the range. Thanks for having me on, Ben. No, thank you. Tell our listeners where you're from originally. Mifflintown, Pennsylvania, which is central Pennsylvania between Harrisburg and uh, State College. Okay. So you are a native of the state of Pennsylvania, and now you're down here in South Florida. So we kind of start these episodes off with just a little bit of background about your early beginnings in the game of golf, what got you started. So give me the... uh, Give me the brief snapshot of how you got into the game of golf. Well, my my father, uh, uh, who's left-handed and is, uh, uh, for for lack of better words, he's a chop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, hey, Dad. Hope you're listening. Um, <laughs> no, we'll, we'll we'll get things going. Uh, he's helped me out with a lot in life, and uh, and started me with uh, the game of golf uh, as well. And uh, it is started uh, way back when, whenever he would go play uh, in the afternoons, um, take care of uh, the farm chores in the evening. And it would be uh, go to the local miniature golf uh, place. Uh, we'd get bit up by mosquitoes and everything in the summertime. But, hey, that was my start. And then that evolved into going to this little itty-bitty course uh, that was called Indian Run in McClure, Pennsylvania. It was a good starter golf course, and then uh, as it evolved, um, high school on up through, golf wasn't my primary thing. Uh, baseball, uh, grew up a baseball nut, and played golf in the fall as it was offered uh, to us then uh, in high school. Did that over football, and then once I got out of uh, high school and the baseball thing uh, stopped and migrated into golf, and with all of that. Golf became primary as uh, I started to go to school for turf grass science at Penn State University. 
so you went to Penn State. Now, obviously, big D1 athletic powerhouse in just about everything, most notably, of course, is football. Did you play there? Were you good enough in high school to think about maybe participating and playing on that team? Or were you just going to college for turf grass? Going to college for turf grass. Okay. I, I didn't have the game. I didn't have the honed, uh, honed in game uh, as, as I grew into in life. So how does how does one say, I want to go get a degree in turf grass? Well, it took me going to a college visit at Delaware Valley in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, a little D3 school uh, outside of Philly. Uh, my cousin had gone there um, and then transferred to Penn State, um, went there for dairy husbandry. Fancy word for dairy farming. Husbandry is a really weird word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, just, I mean. So that's, that's why I, I preface it as fancy word for dairy farming, but I'm not trying to offend anybody in the farming community at all because that's where my roots are. You don't want to offend farmers. But back to where, uh, back to where uh, we're talking about this evening. So Delaware Valley was my start, and I walk up to this first display as, uh, as a high school junior. Turfgrass science. Wow. What's that? Oh, so look at it, and it's taking care of football fields and golf courses. Oh, that was a that was an attraction to me. Well, took a little more, walked around a little bit, uh, looked at what else they had to offer there, programs wise. Of course, there was uh, the intent then, when I was a high school junior, to uh, stay around and uh, uh, and possibly farm uh, after college, uh, as my uncle and uh, father were giving me every ample opportunity to. Uh, to learn and grow as I was, uh, wasn't anything that they forced me to do. Uh, it was, it was what I, it was my desire to do. Sure. So I hadn't worked on a golf course at all yet. I had this local golf course at home, five minutes from the house, um, that, uh, if I was going to do it, I had to jump in and do it. I, I just couldn't do both farming and, uh, uh, and, and go try to try to get a turf degree and, you have to realize that you were led into turf grass because of your background with your family and farming. So it seems for like, sure. Yeah. So it seems like it's just a natural transition. Um, so before we get into all of that, and we're going to hit on a lot of different topics because, you know, I don't know and talk to many superintendents. So I have a lot of questions, a lot of uh, topics to discuss, but before we do that, let's kind of go into your, your playing career um, your amateur playing, you have uh, quite a few notable accomplishments. You get your degree in turf grass. I would imagine you get your first job and you start playing a little bit more then. Is that kind of the track we're on right now? Right out of school, I wanted to do something with a Penn State degree, and I had the opportunity to go to L.A. and Riviera Country Club, uh, the George Thomas uh, design that sits down in the canyon that uh, still year in, year out is one of the best tests on the pga tour but uh i i'll just say this now i'm a golf nut that works on a golf course so riviera right out of school enjoyed my time out there but uh, honestly got homesick but that was in the middle of a construction project to the golf course that you see today uh number seven number eight uh the barank has restored um as well as 13 t um, but again, it was a point that I was in the infancy. I, I was only a couple years into it as I was only a couple summers, uh, of experience at home. So still a lot of, I, I was very green during my time at Riviera. And, and that too, uh, is where we're at here in the golf industry today. Uh, that was on the backside of the golf boom. Um, as far as whenever a bunch of golf courses were being still built and a lot of turf students going out into the world and everything. 
lot different than it is today. There was a progression coming out of school. I thought, okay, we'll put in the year here, see how it goes. But I came home for an interview at Lebanon Country Club um, with Jeff Fry, uh, who was a superintendent there at the time. And I worked my way back home after that. And a lot of things fell together. Sure. So so you, you spend your time at Riviera, you head back to, to Lebanon, um, and you're, you're there as an assistant superintendent. If you had to narrow it down to just one thing that you took away from from being there. Riviera was a true, it was a true secondary education. It, it was really learn the ropes, get fine-tuned. Are you really in it? It, it was a, are you really in this to stay in it type yeah, well, of that's opportunity? A, and, and that's a serious place. Like, that's amazing to get a first year or, or internship or first opportunity at a place like that. You know, mm-hmm. your first year for working in turf grass, you're thinking you're, you're getting something at the local muni or someplace close, but that's a big name joint. And here my, and here my roommate worked for uh, the superintendent uh, close to his house in Hanover, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, he was the grow-in superintendent and through his networking got the call to go to Riviera right from that, uh, I think it was the links of Gettysburg possibly, uh, that they built together. So this a kind of a funny story there. Cause we were, we were, they were building, building a few tees and, and that way, uh, and starting some of the work and number four is a long par four, par four, long par three. Uh, that plays into the uh, prevailing west wind and uh, up on the top of this hillside we put this little tee uh, we get it uh, hand leveled and lasered out and it was at the end of the day sod was coming the next day uh, and uh, we, we were famous for for taking a couple clubs with us late in the evening of course uh, pictures of us uh uh hitting off of hitting the first shots off of this tee <laughs> So you you spend your time at at, uh, at Lebanon. You kind of cut your teeth there as the assistant superintendent. Um, How did you find your way back down to South Florida, and and when did you start competing and playing amateur golf down here? It's, it's all in relationships. It's really in your networking, and it, it, it's still guys that I that I talk to today. Uh, they're twin brothers, uh, Col- uh, John and Jim Colo. Um, Jim was superintendent at Old Marsh. And John at the time was at the Country Club of York. Uh, now both brothers are here in South Florida, one in Naples at Naples National. And uh, that would be Jim. And John is the course superintendent of the Hills Golf Course at Jupiter Hills. So that that was my way into South Florida. And, and Lebanon uh, w- was a way to start playing more, going out in the evenings, and, and it was cur- encouraged to get out there and, and play in the evening. So, and, and some good stories that uh, that relate uh, from Lebanon and the fact that uh, Mike Swisher, the longtime golf pro, um, back then they had those exhibitions that were going on, uh, and they did a lot of travel in the Palm Springs at that point uh, uh, with groups in that way. And here he had a bighorn hat that uh, had it was a Sergio or it was a Garcia and Woods match, and. So I still hold hold my uh, connections out to Riviera. So the snow's flying in Pennsylvania. Why not go to L.A. for a week to volunteer, get out of the snow and everything? So his directions to me are make sure you get that hat signed if you can. because You're going to be inside the ropes. I'm like, okay, sure. (laughs) That's just a small task to deal with. Because Sergio at the time, he's just this young young whippersnapper, so he'd been a lot he'd be a lot easier. But Tiger, 
doing pretty good at the time, but for the 2000, let's see, it would have been 2001 event. Uh, I go out and Sergio ends up playing and unfortunately Tiger withdraws. So I go back with one signature and tie this into the fact I, I get one of the crew members to take a picture of Sergio uh, as, as signing it with me, uh, hand out reaching, getting ready to get it back from him. So that ties in nicely. But so we roll quickly to 2002 and Swish goes, Darren, are you going out to uh, Riviera again? I'm like, I think so. Well, you got a job, you know, if you don't get this done. Got to get the signature, man. <laughs> exactly. So, and don't come back if you, if you don't get it. Just, I'm like, just, oh, sign, just sign it yourself. He's not going to know the difference. I didn't. I didn't. Okay. I got it done. It's got Tiger. It's still, he's retired, but I think it's still on, the, on display uh, uh, in the Lebanon Pro Shop yet today. It, it was a proud, uh, proud memento of his and still tells the story to this day as we're together. So it's, it's all the little things that add up into uh, try to pay it back then later on uh, as well. And that's kind of the position in career where I'm getting at uh, to this point. So, so hypothetical, I'm going to throw this out at you. I want to put mm-hmm. on a golf tournament. You're, you're wearing your, um, you're, you're wearing your superintendent hat on right now. Or, or, or as I'm known as uh, my Carl hat for Carl Spackler. Oh, damn it. You just ruined the joke. Um, just, oh. <laughs> just calm down. Um, put your superintendent hat on. And yeah. now that you stepped on the joke, um, chinch bugs and manganese discuss. <laughs> one, one, you can grit your teeth with it. And the other one, you just try to smash. Okay. Well, that was exceptionally shorter than I had anticipated. Um, so anyway, let me throw another one out at you. Um, I, I want to, okay. So let's say I want to put a tournament on yep. at, at, at your course or at any course. And, yep. and I want to have golf holes the size of manhole covers. Mm-hmm. I think Taylor may did this in some sort of like a grow the game initiative, but I want to do that. I want to have a four man scramble. I want the holes the size of manhole covers on and, sides of the hills and everything. Right. I don't know about that. I just, I just want the big, huge golf holes where people are chipping yep. in from like 40 yards and there's hole in ones and shit. And it's just, you know, fun. As a superintendent, does that give you anxiety, or could that happen at golf courses? It could happen at golf courses. It needs to happen at golf courses. Oh my god! To grow the superintendent the game. saying this on this is great. All right, go ahead, go ahead. It, it's it's a grow the game factor, and that's and that's through my as you're saying my my ties to our national association with uh, GCSAA. So like so you just said it's fine if a golf course can do these manhole covers and kind of tear up the greens a little bit. Um, who does the superintendent really work for? Do you work for the members or do you work for the owners of the facility? It, it, it varies on your facility. Uh, and then that's a very good question. Um, on, on the private side of things, you are probably set up with uh, a couple scenarios to where you could have a single owner or a couple owners that you're working for. Then that makes it easy. Uh, but a lot of the private sector has green committees. And then as you get down into municipalities uh, and uh, in, in, in private and sound, sorry, public and semi, semi-private courses, it just depends on uh, where the club is and, and how their structure is. There's probably some semi-private clubs like my uh, course at home. They have a board of directors that 
uh, and, and wherever their bylaws are, take them there. But with the county organizations and such, you have a, say, just as a terminology, you have a deputy, deputy director um, type of thing that is the overall organizer. And then everybody's on down the spaghetti model from there. So we know about your experience as a player. We know about your career as a superintendent. Have there ever been times where you've actually had to get a course prepared for a tournament that you're going to actually play in? One, one fortunate thing is being uh, the, the Palm Beach County Golf Association. In 2015, when uh, we hosted the County Am, and then I played all in the same boat. That, that, there's still people today that talk about that event. Not because of, yeah, everything. If there was a crystal ball and everything turned out perfect, that was the one time it'll turn out perfect because it didn't rain. And I went out and did the work in the morning. We did the work in the afternoon and went and played in the middle. Yeah, it was a long week, but everybody was able to grasp. Whenever you're out and able to interact with people and they know you have a passion for it as much as they do far as the playing side of it and then try and want to understand what you do, at least – have the basic grasp, not down into the manganese and chinch bugs like you were talking about and trying to get me to bite on a little farther <laughs> earlier. <laughs> it, it's just really, really enlightening that people, they, they, they rather than just seeing the greens 12, they want to know a little bit how it got done. They, sure. Now, but do they, do they ask how long did it take you to get it here? Well, sure. When you got a major event like that in the same way with the PGA tour, or a major or whatever, there's planning that goes into it. And the planning is you got this looked out. In my case, it was about two months out. We got our sprays in line and uh, for our fertility and wedding agents and uh, programs along. And it all worked out. We didn't have any rain that week. I forget if you participated or not. But uh, if there was a crystal ball, it all worked out. And there was a point, I think, on – Friday afternoon, after the first round, we went and just re-rolled because uh, grass clipping rates and everything were good. We weren't getting a lot of grass. Everything was all healthy and just perfect. Uh, there was a little wind out of the east, and I just for giggles went and rolled the 13th green, and uh, I, I the ball just kept rolling. Nice. And it's stimping both both directions to validate. I'm like, wait a second, this isn't 13 where I left it this morning. I had 14 and a half, and I'm like, oh, my Lord, this this can't work. That's a problem. We're going to have to throw a little water on this to make sure we're not too fast for the next morning. So it, it was just by rolling. We were keeping the stress on, keeping the playability up so that they were consistent. And, uh, it, it's it's planning. It comes into planning. It comes into some timing. Um, you see the events on the tour where it's sunshine and nice all week, but then you also see the events on tour where it's raining all week, and it's just a slog fest and everything. Well, if the if the tour players are playing 36, well, the staff is playing about 36 a day. Yeah, plus plus. Sure. At major championships, course conditions are a big deal. Now you know the Masters. It seems like uh, unless they get some crazy weather, the conditions are pristine and consistent. Maybe they, you know, grow a little inch rough or they do this or that, but you pretty much know what you're going to get the Masters. And typically the Open Championship, that's all predicated on weather. Um, U.S. Open and 
the conditions there are talked about a lot. So mm-hmm. how does that process work where you have a governing body, you have the golf course, you have PGA Tour or LPGA Tour, or how does that whole process work when you're getting ready to get the course set for tournament time? Each, the USGA and uh, the PGA Tour uh, and the LPGA Tour for that much, uh, each have agronomists. So they're basically uh, assigned golf courses and they're out front. They're the out front people. I know there's an agronomist that is consistent with the superintendent year round rather than changing agronomists year to year, if that makes sense. Sure. So you're working with the same advanced person. You don't have to guess who you're getting year to year, start the relationship, uh, learn this guy, what's he going to expect out of me type of thing. PJ Tour is a, a one-week deal. Majors are a one-week deal, but it's a little more. It's an extra step. I'll, I'll go there in a second. So it's a little more of a systematic thing to where across the year, they want they have a program for you. They want you to be here, positioned here at such a point. Three months out, have this started. Two months, it's a whole program. It's, it's worked out. Um, and then a month out, you're doing your final groomings, but you're not really dropping heights. Everything's everything's coming tournament ready uh the week before you're finishing your final heights you're finishing your bunker preps all that type of stuff it's a well-oiled machine on the pga tour uh and then that that's to be commended because they they do put on a good show and and everybody has to remember that it is a programmed show okay (laughs) and our our golfing public tends to forget that uh at points whenever we're out playing uh, and not realizing that the staff may be bolstered by 10 to 50 on a random PGA Tour week. So if your staff was 20, and you bolster it by 10. You, you got 10. You, you got a staff of 30. Man, you get a lot more done. Manage, man. <clears throat> imagine if you got 50 extra on a 25-person staff. Man, you're you're knocking the world out if you know what I'm saying. Because it's on a tournament week, they want you off the golf course before any of the tee times are started. They, they don't want you out there monkeying around. A lot of the first tee times, as I recollect, as I remember in L.A., it was barely light. Um, they were like 6.40 in the morning would be first tee times. Okay. So we'd start at 4 in the morning, crew off the front, crew off the back, uh, and we'd be in the shop by 7 o'clock. And, and that staff uh, is a prime example uh, because people would come from to from all over uh, as that network uh, of people just to just to get together as a little bit of a reunion sense. Uh, it was a way to get away. Who wouldn't want to go to L.A. whenever you're in Rochester, New York, yeah. or you're in New York, period, or Pennsylvania like I was? So USGA has their own agronomists uh, that help set up the staff way out in front as they have – tournaments named five years in advance so as the regional event comes up the regional agronomist uh, from across the united states coordinates with the superintendent for what they're looking for in standards each weekend of course the u.s open is the is the major uh, jewel of their uh, events and they are basically coming in and taking over the club for basically a month ahead of the event. So 
it, it's a big to do and to get all the tents up and get it around your infrastructure and it, it, it's it requires the, the club being behind it of and course. the club ends up being bolstered they get the recognition and then it helps their membership on the backside uh helps grow a golf course helps finish it it's it's a it's a major to do and and no pun intended as i say that as well sure so so we're gonna we're gonna transition when i keep trying to get back to your your playing which i i can tell you're a little bit modest about but we're just gonna rip the band-aid off that and get into a little bit about what you <laughs> what you do when you're not working on a golf course when you're actually playing on a golf course let's go back home so you have played in a tournament in pennsylvania that i actually played in played in the uh, sullivan invitational at uh, your former place of employment lebanon country club um phenomenal golf course i had so much fun at this place being a a native floridian and just not playing a lot of courses in the northeast uh i i love this track it was it was just a lot of fun tell me a little bit about this tournament you won it with your partner help me out with the name of your partner by the way jim radigan uh and jim radigan and i date back to our penn state days uh we first met in the fall of 99 and uh, on a golf course, imagine that. And uh, it was for a qualifier between uh, Penn State Turf Club and Michigan State's Turf Club. And we were the one and two qualifiers and uh, went to a chilly fall afternoon at Pittsburgh Field Club. And uh, we, we've been fast friends ever since. So you guys win the uh, Sullivan in 09. Um, tell me a little bit about this tournament. Um I remember a lot of fun golf, a lot of fun people, and a lot of drinking. So uh, just and, – and I've only been there once. So so the Sullivan goes way back, and everything about the Sullivan, uh, a lot of it has to do with people, people coming there, and it, it's an actual reunion there as well. Mike Swisher put uh, 45 years there uh, as the head pro. I want to say 2012 or so was his last full year as head pro, but he still teaches there today. He's still around. He's that uh, has everything. So, so how does this, but, so how does this tournament uh, to run? Give me a little bit of backstory about, uh, you know, the different, because this is more of like a community uh, uh, tournament. This the, it ends up being people drawn from, uh, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, uh, as far as Texas, it's their open event of uh, the Harrisburg District. And this dates back to the 30s, this Sullivan event, W.B. Sullivan. And there's a lot of names on that that you look at it and don't recognize, but then you see the repeats. And uh, just a lot, lot of good people. And it, it is a big family. It is a big family event as well. Everybody comes and has fun. Uh, enjoys the area, and then uh, by Sunday afternoon, you're you're headed in your separate way back to your day job. But it, it's a lot more the format of it is you qualify uh, one round uh, either Thursday or Friday, and then uh, the low 15 teams plus a defending champ go into match play, which turns into a 36-hole marathon, um, and depending on the weather you're pretty well worn out by uh, the time this is all over. Uh, having gone through the championship and even into the semifinal yeah, and they a couple got the, times and like they I've got, been fortunate enough to do. And they got the bar there. They got the bar there all the way. I mean, you, <laughs> they, they set up that portable bar uh, right by uh, 
what is that? Nine, nine green? Nine right green. by nine green. Right by yep. nine green. And damn it, I kept walking past that thing and just money's flying out of my wallet. And I didn't mean to do that, but um, no, it was, a, it was a great event. And for, for our listeners, um, if you want to learn more about this tournament, it's uh, at Lebanon Country Club. So go to lebcc.com and you will be able to find it there on the website. Awesome, awesome event. Um, fun, fun course, fun people. It's a, it's a well-oiled machine that even after years of, uh, of painstaking uh, qualifying rounds, they finally went to a pace of play rule this year, and they were him hauling about it about the last couple of years. And was there any issues? No. Nope. That was the best. That was the best. Oh, everybody was such comforted. And my partner and I were looking at each other like, where's the backups? Personally, I think good players want a fair pace of play policy put in place. Yeah, whatever because it is, just put something in place and and keep the riffraff moving. I think it's fair. Exactly, and uh, they they have come to me in years past, not just not just pat my own back here, but it's from from playing Go here in on. Florida and everything, and uh, ask me what do they do in Florida? What do they, what do they, what do they do in your county golf association down here? So. And, and it's been those examples, and, and they know it well, too, there for uh, the Pennsylvania Golf Association and the Philadelphia, the Gap down there, um, uh, which is, what is it, the Golf Association of Philly, I think. Uh, they all have pace of play rules, and it's the same way that I've been harping on our national association. We have to have a pace of play. The, the superintendents there ends up being uh, uh, just under 100, right at 100, right around 100 each year. Uh, play in our national championship, which correlates with our uh, golf industry show, uh, which this year is going to be in San Antonio. Rotates across three regions uh, uh, every three years. So one year, last year was in Orlando. This year we're moving to San Antonio, and we've been uh, camping out in San Diego uh, every third year. (laughs) So that's a uh, a rough joint. That's kind of rough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So before we start talking about the trade show, which we're not going to do, because um, no, because nobody, nobody wants <laughs> to talk about the their, same. yeah, we're not every, yeah, trade every shows one or trade of those shows. Is the same. Yes. Yeah, we're not going to do that. But we are going to talk about the national championship because you won that in 2014. 2014 was national, a home game. National championship. Where did you win that? Where was that tournament? Tell me about that. It was, it was here in Orlando. Uh, we played the Disney courses. Uh, uh, the Palma Magnolia, the the uh, tournament courses uh, that they played in the, when it used to be a fall uh, event. And just a 36-hole event, so we played uh, a golf course each day. Got started uh, with a, uh, I believe it was a 3-under-69 uh, uh-huh. to start uh, on the Palm Golf, uh, yes, on the Palm Golf Course. And so that uh, definitely got me into the last group, and I was a leader by a couple. And so here I go on this uh, adventure playing the Magnolia golf course. Nothing like getting it, getting it started uh, with a nice 50-foot uh, two-putt to start on the first green. That'll, that'll ease the nerves, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, luckily I cozied it, cozied it up to about six inches, so uh, we, we got off and running. So cool. by, like, 14, I had got the lead up to five. And that's when and you start drinking. Uh, no. well, I got a little overconfident. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it, w- it was just a high old time. I ended up, uh, 
beating a Australian. Um, but we, my, my, what was a five shot lead quickly went down on a, on a birdie and a bogey exchange went down to two. And then that was after the 15th hole. Uh, and then 16, we ended up 15 or 16. It was, I forget. But anyway, it, it was birdie exchange. We, he made a birdie and I made a birdie right on top of him to hold my lead. And the winning difference ended up being, uh, three shots. You finish off the tournament. You're, you're the national champion. And I'm guessing the, the trophy that you get as the, the national champion of the golf course superintendents association is, is that like a, uh, a bronze, a, <laughs> a cup cutter, a, a bronze, bronze cup cutter, cutter no, or, or no. do they, or do they fill the trophy with divot mix? Like, how does that work? Like, no, it, no. It, what it is, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a normal trophy, but what it is on there is a lot of names and a lot of history that go back a long, a long time. And it was, it was very, very fun to look through all the names and take it all in and drink a couple yingling beers while we were soaking it all in and doing the couple press releases and all of that that needed to get done. And now, time for a quick bucket. So we have a little segment here on uh, the back of the range, and it's called the uh, the quick bucket. But it, but in reality, is there such thing as a quick bucket? Because even though we think it's a quick bucket in our reality, it never turns into a quick bucket because we talk to somebody in between, right? That's what we're doing right now, Darren. We're ta- you're, but inter- I mean... you're, you're interrupting the quick bucket. <laughs> you're just you're proving your point. No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. There, you're, there is no such thing as a man, just stepping all over me on my own show. Um, quick questions. Want to see uh, your take on a couple of these things? Jack Nicholas won the Masters in 1986 at the age of 46. Take that victory and compare it to the fifth green jacket of Tiger Woods. Which would be the more substantial victory? This day and age, probably Tigers for for where everything is on uh, uh, just the media where it is today to where it was then. So um, let me throw this one out at you. You can give a major championship to anyone in history, male or female, alive or dead. They could have no majors to their credit or 18 majors to their credit. <laughs> Who would you give that major championship to? That's a loaded question. I, I was thinking, I was thinking you were just gonna have a. Ra- this is like a rapid fire thing, but this is actually making me think. Hey, wow! I, I don't mean to put you out, man. I mean, <laughs> on the proverbial island. <laughs> there, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to test you too much. But uh, no, but our by working relationship, uh, if I was a USGA, a PGA person that I was going to be able to hand the hand the trophy to probably Nick Price just for how genuine that guy is. He is just that genuine. That's a good one. That's a good one. And 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 a guy that has uh you know he has a Claret jug. He's won the Wanamaker. You know he he has a couple. But yeah, he does mm-hmm. a lot. He does a lot in our community. Yep. And and he's been recognized by uh, our association with our old Tom Morris, just like Ernie Els is uh, the recipient this year. So the final question for you, this one is actually tailored towards you. Um, at, at the end of the day, at the end of your career, when you retire, where would you most like to be the superintendent? Probably somewhere uh, a little off the grid. Hoping as I'm coming through the 
prime of uh, my career to find a couple of these jobs that are uh, uh, of, of a little high stress value and high demand. Uh, won't name anything in specific, but uh, you know how you have a couple of these clubs that hang out along the beaches and the oceans uh, from here all the way up uh, the coast of up and down the coast of Florida and even the Georgia. Probably something relaxing like that, or up in uh, uh, up in the foothills somewhere. Uh, uh, maybe even return back to Pennsylvania, depending uh, where we're at in life. So finally, you mentioned earlier in the episode that you are a golf nut working at a golf course. Tell me about some courses that you've played recently that have really impressed you as far as their conditioning and their layout and their history. Fortunate to uh, make a summer trip over in Scotland uh, and played Royal Troon, uh, which was awesome. It was It was a... Piner's number two setting, in my opinion, with a Pebble Beach view. Okay. <laughs> That's probably the I, – I can't think of a better endorsement for a golf course than to throw that out. <laughs> um, and we, we played a bunch of golf courses. Uh, it, that was probably the big one, but uh, we, we played uh, Trump's golf courses over there. Uh, not not uh, um, Turnberry? Wow. What a what a golf course! The the Alyssa golf course there, yep. and then Robert the Bruce is uh, is the second golf course, and it was granted it was an ugly windy day, but oh my word, the Alyssa golf course is oh awesome redo, uh, and then that, those were the two highlights uh, out of a seven course tour over there that included Presswick and Presswick is even very good too. Going for how much history is there. I have an invite to play Presswick in August. Take it. Okay. Don't pass up on it. Okay. <laughs> it, it might not look like much, but just do it. Oh, the <laughs> history. It. That's where the first open championship was played. I don't care what it's like. I'm going. Exactly. And, and, and make sure you duck. You're up there where you catch things in the clouds. There's big planes that fly in that Presswick <laughs> Airport that's right next door. Okay. All right. So, so, any, so any courses that you've played here in the States that really jumped out at you? Well, I was very fortunate to uh, be a guest uh, of a group over at Stringsong Black. Played the blue. Uh, seems like a little different monster, but uh, the blue and the red are kind of composite right in amongst each other. Uh, they made a sprawling black course that is, I just think it's wow. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. They, they, they've got... From my side, not a lot of people know about string song. Uh, it, it's a phosphorus mine, so they're dealing with reclaimed, stripped soils, and forming all of these moundings. And the sand's all natural; they don't they don't have to go bring in a lot of materials because everything that's that's there will drain faster than any soil that you're going to bring in or sand that you're going to bring in. I mean, anything that drains. 40 inches in an hour but anyway uh but the black horse definitely definitely has a little muscle it, it's it's a little different and will take a couple times to help you interpret it, it it's a definite interpretation to me uh playing at one time and, and it's if you had the opportunity and someone asked you to consult on the design of a golf course would you want to do that 
I think I have enough of knowledge, but I would I would want somebody that's experienced enough to uh, lead me all on the way. If I if I was able to ride uh, somebody's coattails, not it doesn't even have to be the uh, the hot guys in the world. Uh, not, uh, but that would be awesome. If, but, but if you if, could if just could. Right, if if you just had a, a seat at the table of a golf course design, is that is yeah. that a career aspiration for you? Uh, maybe, okay. maybe. Um, with the different renovation that you get at the club, and that way you're able to immerse yourself in that with the designer as well, uh, with the architects that you're working with at the club. And I've I, I filled that void a little bit, I guess, uh, as you asked that question. So, um, do I want to do it full time? Uh, not just yet. No, just but as a project. Dabble, dabble with it. Yeah. Cool. Sure. Well, Darren. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for uh, being a guest here on the the Back of the Range. And uh, appreciate you being on the Back of the Range. And thank you, Ben. Appreciate the time. And there you have it. Thanks very much to Darren Zent. That was episode 10. If you like what you're hearing so far, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Shoot us an email, ben at thebackoftherange.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Hope you all have a great week. We'll see you again at the Back of the Range.